10 p.m. Eastern Time, Radio Free Brooklyn. Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is our first show. This is a brand new show and it's hosted by me, Asha Saluja. Um, yeah, this is my first episode. So before we get into it with our very special inaugural guest, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what the show is going to be about. Bushwick Junction is a show about life's inflection points. So we're going to talk about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we take when we reach them, where those choices lead us, and where they may not. We're going to talk about the decisions we agonized over, the ones that we took tons of time and energy and resources to decide on, and the decisions that we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We're going to talk about how we decide things, what methods we use, and how we make our lists and check them twice and, and think through the, the moments where we know we're at a crossroads. Uh, but we're also going to talk to guests who are good at tapping into their intuition and not making those lists and not agonizing, but just going with their gut and, and following the energy that their life brings them and deciding that way. And finally, we're going to talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate, or do we end up in the same place no matter what? Those are just a few of the themes that we're going to think through on this show, but we're going to do that through uh, basically an interview-style talk show. We're going to talk to different people who are in the community here at Radio Free Brooklyn, different people who are in the community in Bushwick, where we're broadcasting live from, by the way. Uh, and we're going to have each guest take us through their life story as a series of decisions. Uh, so we're going to start with birth and the circumstances that each guest was born into. And from there, we're going to keep going through the life story as a series of junction points. Like I said, we don't necessarily have to make each junction point a big decision that we knew was one at the time. But as we look back on our lives, we often think, about where things change, where things inflected. So those are the, the basically the points that we're going to focus on in this show. Um, and we're going to end here where we are, our decision to come to this show, our decision to be here in Bushwick right now. 
that's the name Bushwick Junction. Uh, so with that little intro, I think we're ready to get started. Um, by the way, if you have any questions or um, are interested in calling in for our guest who's about to introduce himself, our phone number is 718-928-9732. 718-928-9732. Feel free to call, hit us up, and ask questions. With that, our first guest today is one of the founders of Radio Free Brooklyn, major community member here. Rob, do you want to introduce yourself? I don't know if we can hear you. Can you hear yourself? No, I can't hear myself. Test, test. Okay, let's try another mic. I think you I think that's my fourth. Oh, yep, that's Here we are. Good. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. My first technical difficulty here on Bushwick <laughs> Junction. We made it. Hi, my name is Rob Pritchard, and I'm one of the co-founders of Radio Free Brooklyn. So, yeah. That's so interesting what you were saying about uh, the format of your show, because I actually, when I review my life, I kind of think in terms of that, you know, like the road not taken. You told me right before the show that you think of your life as, you think of points where the train went off the rails, and I tried really hard not to steal that phrase in my intro. I was like, <laughs> mm, I'm going to save it for him, but bears repeating. Um, so I think as a general, as an intro on this show, I'm going to ask for a not brief introduction. So that's that's my question to you. Can you give us a not brief introduction to your life, your name, it, you, just like what you're up to? Describe your life to me a little bit. I actually know nothing about you. I've seen you around. I know what you do here, but what do you, what what's up for you? Yeah. Wow. Um, I came to Radio Free Brooklyn actually. Uh, it's just, it's um, from from my from my end. It's actually an expression of love, Radio Free Brooklyn. Wow. Um, and that's a real big turnaround for me because I actually grew up. Angry, yeah, and uh, uh, sort of uh, very, very cogent of the injustices in the world and of how unfair you know uh, life is, uh, and uh, and so I, I, that's you know, and I actually had a, a for the longest time an almost nihilistic approach. And that turned around about 15 years ago. Sounds like the best inflection point. I think we're going to need we're going to need some intro before we get to that. I want my first question to be t- tell me about you're you're talking about being angry. Almost sounds like you were were born angry in a way. Yeah, I remember. Can I was, you tell me can you tell me what what circumstance you were born into and what you know, what your life could have looked like based on the time of your birth and where, where this anger come, came from. Was it like, was it there the moment you were born? No, no, no. It, it, it came a little bit later. I Probably first, second grade. Wow, third that's grade. early still. Yeah, it's still early because, so here's, a, here's I was born into a military family. My dad was, was U.S. Army uh, when I was born. Uh, and my mom... Uh, is German and 
when he married her, he spoke no German and she hardly spoke any English. Wow. And it was very romantic, actually. Uh, yeah. But uh, if you know anything about military brats, it's that they move a lot. Mm-hmm. So within the first 10 years of my life, I'd already moved 10 times. And so by the time I was six, I was tired of it. Where did you start? Where were you born? I was born in Regensburg, Germany. Okay, born in Germany. Yeah. And uh, where was your first move? Um, in, we moved, uh, I, was, I was an infant, and we, we moved to uh, El Paso, Texas. And then uh, from Texas, we moved to, I want to say Kansas, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which I vaguely remember. And then we were back in Germany uh, for kindergarten, first and second grade, but it was like three different places in Germany. So like every year I was in a new place and so I'd make friends and lose them, make friends and lose them, make friends and lose them. And that's a pattern I still have in my life is I actually have very few really close friends, but I have a lot of acquaintances. I know a lot of people, but very few of them are really, really close friends. And I think that was part of why, why I was a bit of an angry kid is that there was a very, very little continuity in, 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 in my life. In terms yeah, that of, sounds really isolating, honestly. We in terms kind of, of relationships. Need that continuity to feel belonging. And, and so I recall losing my temper a lot, you know, because I was, uh, 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 I would, I would have to play by myself a lot because the, I didn't have a new circle of friends yet. And so like I'd try to build a model or make a puzzle and, and then get frustrated and then I'd have no one to like, uh, uh, relate these frustrations to and then i just lose my temper (laughs) did you have brothers and sisters no is my uh, we can hear me right you can hear me in your headphones right no brothers and sisters you're an only child yeah so am i wow yeah so that's 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 isolating too i've been thinking about that a lot lately it really is isolating yeah people with siblings have all these other people around who are like half copies of them right Right. When and, 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 yeah, and they, and they, and, and like twins, for instance, even have their own languages, you know? Yeah. Twins are lucky, man. Those, those, like twins have someone built in to share their whole lives with. They don't need anyone else. Yeah. They, they have a very personal mirror right there. I've, I'm jealous, I have to say, of twins. So <laughs> you're, you're growing up, you're sort of in this, uh, transient mode with your parents and, you're, you're landing in uh, Germany for grade school, and that's where you're remembering starting to feel, like, isolated and angry. Yeah, and then, and then uh, third grade, I'm in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Oh, wow. So you're moving, like, every year, yeah. Yeah, third grade, I'm in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and, and this is, like, a, uh, another, uh, like, it's just, like, southwestern American culture, which is completely different than military culture in uh, uh, Germany. Hmm. Um, I'm still on the army base, but I'm being sent to a public school. And whereas before I was going to uh, military uh, uh, s- uh, sponsored schools. And so the public school system in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, they were into corporal punishment. Whoa. So here I am, I'm eight years old and I'm getting paddled for just, you know, s- stupid infractions like not being in line proper or, you know, whispering or whatever. Uh, and I, and then, and then, you know, but I'm living on the army base, uh, at Fort Sill and seeing, you know, and at, at eight, at eight, I was old enough to sort of get 
the culture to, to, to get that, you know, that this is, you know, a militaristic, uh, uh, highly competitive and very hyper masculine culture. Hmm. I saw 18 year old recruits, you know, on, uh, scrubbing sidewalks with toothbrushes. Oof. Uh, um, and, and, uh, and, and in the public school, there was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was all, you know, it was uh, very segregated. And, um, and I didn't know, understand where, where all the black kids were. So it was segregated racially and if, what, if in Germany, was it not? No, it was not at all. The military was completely integrated. And so was Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And, and, uh, and a, a military base is segregated, uh, uh, but not racially. It's segregated officer corps versus enlisted men. Interesting. That's how they segregate. Uh, those two d- groups don't hang Glass out. Class versus race. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So you grew up. You were a tiny kid. You were in the third grade, and you already were understanding hierarchy in a way that most third graders probably yeah. don't. I got I got hierarchy, and I got uh, uh, competition of uh, being uh, uh, preferred over cooperation. Wow. And I decided right then and there I wasn't going to, uh, you know, like I remember uh, when it, when I did, it was like I, uh, it was suggested I try out for Pee Wee football. So I I went out and they put these big pads on me and they put this big helmet on my little head and and then they had kids who were my size or bigger smash into each other, and uh, I was like one afternoon of that was enough and <laughs> I went home and I said, Dad, you could get killed playing that game. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and I'm not, so I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm uh, just, uh, and then the next year we were somewhere else. The next year we were back in Germany. Um, do you, so how were your parents with that? Did they, were they okay with you not playing football? Yeah, they were fine. Okay. Uh, I, I actually, I was back in Germany the next year because my dad then went to Vietnam. Oh, wow. And, uh, so then I'm watching the war on TV in Germany and wondering, you know, if my dad's going to be okay. And my mom, (laughs) she's German. She starts dressing me like a German kid and sending me to the American sponsored school. Uh So the American kids are like calling me a kraut and and I'm getting into fights. And, uh, uh, so that was just more anger. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's think, let's. Let's parse that for a second. So you're in like middle school, fifth, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And you, your dad is away in Vietnam and your mom is trying to integrate you into German culture, but still sending you to an American school. I'm going to the American school. This is fourth grade only, actually. It's oh, not wow. even fifth and sixth. It's just fourth grade. And because and, by fifth grade, I'm back in the States. Okay. Uh, and dad, is, dad, dad was only in Nam for 11 months. Um, but yeah, that's basically what happened. She she sent me to the American school dressed up like a German kid, with like German lederhosen, wow. the knicker, the long the long knicker versions, <laughs> you know. With and I had and I had like yeah, you know, tights on underneath. They're not socks, so the kids are trying to pull my socks down. They're going, oh, what are you wearing, you know? And <laughs> and I'm getting in, I'm getting into fights, you yeah. know, because uh, I'm not taking that. Um, so let's let's make this into a junction. Do you remember the first time? I mean, you, you remember football. You remember deciding not to play football. That's a junction. You're like, yeah. this American culture is not for me. I don't want to be a part of this. This is violent and yeah, gross, and I'm not going to participate. Do you right. remember, do you remember a, a key moment where you decided to fight with someone instead of just take it in 
Germany? Like, do you remember deciding to fight back? Yeah, some some kid called me a kraut and and pushed me or whatever, and I so I slugged him, you know. And, and then next thing you know, we're fighting. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I hate fighting. I hated it then. I never like. I've never enjoyed it. Um, it makes me feel really bad. Um, when you were a kid, you were doing something that made you feel bad. Was it a little bit of a? Sounds like a little bit of shame. You're doing something, and you think you're bad for doing it. I don't know if I felt like I felt I was bad. I just felt like it was a bad situation. Yeah. You know, good. Uh, you know, and and uh, uh, and that I wasn't good at it. And I, I was. I'm, yeah, I mean that's a good question because I envied kids that could do it, that could fight. Yeah, and that and that enjoyed it. You know, and that were, you know, and it, was, it wasn't that I had fear. It's just that it felt bad. Yeah. Because you know? um, I actually, in terms of, in terms of fear, I challenge myself on many levels about that. I, 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 I taught myself to, you know, do um, tricks on the high dive uh, when I was 14, basically, because I was, ch- you know, I was. I was interested in my, my, my fear threshold. So Wow. So that let's skip let's skip ahead a little bit. So you're a teenager. Where were most of your teenage years? Well, we moved to Alexandria, Virginia, uh, for fifth grade and then we stayed there until I graduated high school. But we lived in three different homes and I went to four different schools. Because uh, the Alexandria school system um in one year? No, no, no. In, oh, in, in bet- between fifth grade and, and graduating high school. Oh, okay. So you were c- kind of in one place. Yeah, but cool. in three different homes right, and right. four different schools. Because um, Alexandria had like grade school was through sixth grade. And then they had what they called middle school, which was seventh and eighth. And then when I first went there, they had four-year high schools. But by the time I was in the ninth, when I was in the 10th grade, they switched it so that two nine ten schools fed into one eleven twelve school and they did that in order because they had a racial uh, integration issue and so we all they created one super senior high school with a thousand seniors and um uh, so i ended up graduating from a two-year high school i Uh, think they did that because they didn't want to let you down easy let you off easy going to one school the whole time (laughs) i think that was the universe conspiring to keep you Uh, uncomfortable oh it was crazy i i (laughs) Um, there, there was actually a movie called uh, "Remember the Titans" that stars Denzel. Denzel oh yeah, Washington. super familiar. You know the movie? Yeah, that came out when I was in like grade school, and that that it, movie's about my. That's it. my high school. Really? Yeah, and I was there when that happened. Wow. That, I that totally yeah. <laughs> that's a classic, man. That's like a claim to fame. Yeah, Coach Boone was my gym teacher, and he didn't look anything like Denzel Washington. Did they Washington. name the- <laughs> coach after the real coach yeah wow yeah the names That's are real fascinating no the names are totally real in oh that my movie. god <laughs> is there a character based on you you, no. you decided not to play football no <laughs> see wait that's a major inflection point you yeah. decided not to play peewee football and so there was no character based on you in remember the Titans. that's correct that's correct that's that's, that's correct fate, man. but uh uh we did have a hippie quarterback from california who who uh uh 
you know, won a bunch of games and then, and our team did win the state championship. And I mean, the story is true. The broad strokes of the story are true. And there was a race riot, except it wasn't at TC Williams where the Titans were. The race riot was actually at the 910 school oh. where I was going at the time. I was a sophomore and I was, I was in that race riot. Um, wow. So it, it was, it was a scary, scary afternoon. Um, so I want to get to I want to get to that, and I also think we could tie it into where I want to go next, which is like we all have, we all have the circumstances we're born into. We have the childhood that we're given, right, and then we all sort of have our first departure from, from the the deck we're given, and maybe probably as a teenager, the day or the time or the year you decide to really differentiate from the lot you were given in life, and it sounds like maybe. Particip- what do you think that was for you as a teenager and how did you experience the race riots was that part of it was that like a self-defining yeah thing yeah that more what you were handed right it's it's interesting all right so i had a um uh starting in seventh grade in the alexandria school systems they uh they start offering you uh electives as okay. part of your school as part of your as part of your school day you know you can so they offer you know you can be you can take shop or you can take art or you can take music or you can take what else did they have i think they had drama starting in the seventh grade and i always asked for art okay but the way they would go about handing out the 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 elective courses to students is i think they did it alphabetically (laughs) because (laughs) that's so funny you know pritchard P, you know, art was all booked up every time. Oh, no. Eighth grade, ninth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. I didn't get into art one class until my senior year. Aww. Uh, and I asked for it every year. Every year I asked for it. And I was so frustrated by that. I ended up in shop in the seventh grade. And in the eighth grade, I was in shop class again. And then in the ninth grade, what did I get? I, I don't even remember. Um, but it wasn't art. Oh, I got drama. I got drama in the ninth grade and, and, uh, but, uh, uh, I'd had a, a few, uh, disciplinary, uh, issues in, in eighth grade. So they, they, they had a thing what they called team teaching and they put all the, all their best students in the A team and they put all the problem kids in the D team. And I ended up in the D team. And so I show up at ninth grade at Hammond high school, uh, and I'm all of a sudden in remedial English. And my teacher is a brand new teacher. She's never taught before. She's a rookie teacher. And I just, I just give her so much hell. I, 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 you know, oh, you want me to deconstruct a sentence? Oh, you want grammar? You know, really? Seriously? You know? <laughs> grammar is so lame. <laughs> and, and, but she, she, to her credit, you know, she was really sweet. Is she, uh, um, she took on the challenge and she, she, she said, you know, she could tell it. I was, you know, I was totally flabbergasted and bored by the entire situation. So she gave me other projects to do and, and ended up recommending me for advanced placement English the next year. Aww. Which is probably where I should have been in the first place. Um, and that, that is what happened. And so finally by 10th grade, things started turning around. But in, in the ninth grade, uh, uh, they called my mom down to the office three or four times that year because, me, me yelling at the English teacher. Uh, um, that's my anger, right? Coming out. Uh, how, how else did, 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 I grew my hair out real long. Uh, this is like 1970. Longer than now? 
Yeah. Rob's hair is like shoulder length. Yeah, it was down to Listeners. the middle of my back uh, by 10th grade. Uh, so we're talking 1970, 1971. Was that the style? The, the, Other people had their hair like this, this is, too. This is, this is like the, you know, Led Zeppelin is at the height of their powers right, now. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Grateful Dead. You know, it was my first concert. I went to the, saw the Grateful Dead in 1971. Um, High school? Yeah. I, I uh, me, and, me and a friend hitchhiked. It was a free show at, at, at American University. Wow. And... Uh, we were just like I was a skinny little hippie kid, you know, who was like totally anti-war. I was a, a fan of Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and 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 the Yippies and uh, Smash the System. I mean, I finally had you know could articulate my anger with the culture. Um, I already by that point decided I was never going to work for the man. Never was never going to take a real nine to five job if I could help it. wasn't Was going to live off the grid if I could. Um, so this is, this is, wait, this is an inflection point. So, or maybe not one singular one, but you basically as a teenager formed the identity that wasn't so uncommon for your day and age of someone who wasn't going to fit into the system. Anti-establishment. Anti-establishment. Yeah, an- Was there a community? An- anti- anti-capitalist, um, Vaguely, you know, at your high school, mostly, yeah, there we, there, there, yeah, we were the freaks, you know, we were the pot smokers, we were the, we were in the drama club, we were doing plays, we were, um, some of us were had bands, rock bands. My two of my best friends, you know, you know, had you know, played jam together. I would hang out with them when they did. I had no musical talent, um, but yeah, that's that, that's that's who I hung out with. I, en- I ended up. Uh, uh, getting heavily involved with the theater department in school. So you found your people. Yeah. Great. So that suddenly this kid who struggles to belong has found belonging. Right. With the theater freaks. Right. And the, the hippies and the grateful dead fans. Yeah. In 1970s high school and the rockers. Yeah. The rockers. Yeah. I have to say it at high schools. Now I think those groups still exist, but the theater kids, don't hang out with the rockers. They're different. They're different kids now. Yeah. And my, and my, and my souls and my, by the, the way, uh, like TC Williams, which is the name of the school. TC Williams Titans is the, does the remember the Titans. Mm -hmm. Um, just crazy. Just crazy. (laughs) It was 11 and 12 when I was there, when I graduated from there, it was just an 11, 12 school. It's gone back to being, I think a three year school. Now I think they have 10, 11 and 12 and they've tightened up. They've tightened up the discipline and the the whole the whole form of that school considerably since the days when I was there. When I was there, it was an open campus. If we didn't have a class, we could go off campus and go do whatever. We could go eat at McDonald's. We could go hang out at the mall. We could do whatever we wanted. Hmm. Um, we had an in uh, in house radio station, and I was actually a DJ for the in house radio station. I played at the mu- high school. Yeah, I played music. Wow. I played music for, uh, during uh, lunch and study hall periods. Do you remember deciding to do that? Do you yeah. remember like getting into it? Talk, yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah, it was part of it was part of my interest in being and part of the theater thing because uh, we used uh, the DJ booth was also the lighting booth for the theater. Oh, so uh, because I was doing you know theater and I, and when I wasn't in a play, I would help tech the play, mm-hmm. run lights and stuff, and then I noticed oh DJ and then we have DJs and I think I'd like to do that too and. Uh, so I was I, I was the I was actually a DJ before I came to Radio Free Brooklyn in high school. Um, and I remember, never in between. Nope. 
Wow. We have so much more to cover. I have to say, we're almost halfway through the show and we're still talking about high school. And I think you remember more details from your high school experience (laughs) 30 years ago than I remember about my high school experience, like, you know, 10 years ago. You you have a sharp memory. Uh, Actually, my high school would be... 40 years ago. Yeah, I was doing, you know that rough math you do, you count it as the year 2000 yeah. right now. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm 10 years old, whatever. Yeah. Uh, was that a rupture, this this life you kind of chose for yourself as a teen with your parents? Yes. Yeah. So that's a big decision to rupture with your parents' way of life. But especially my dad. I, he like was very unhappy with uh, the long hair and uh, the pot smoking and, military uh, dad yeah and the the um, affinity for Abby Hoffman and the yippies and the, yeah. <laughs> and the anti-war pros- that protests that must have been and, kind of common in your generation to yeah. have an anti-war kid in a pretty pro-war family yeah yeah although my mom was not uh, and uh, by 19 19- 73 yeah i was 17 and i had a draft card the war was still going on you know the war didn't end till 75 and my mom was seriously thinking about hmm maybe i'm going to take this kid to canada and my dad was going if they draft you you're going and my mom's going no he's not you know so that's a big part of your generation too just this anxiety and and i was like nah i'm not going yeah okay so that's a decision but you didn't get drafted so you didn't have to decide no wow did your friends like, wow. No, none of my friends either. Uh, they stopped. They didn't, they, they, they handed out numbers in 73, but they didn't call anybody up. Gotcha. Uh, and I was only 17 anyway. And by 74, when I was 18, they really didn't call anybody up. Got it. But I did have a number. Right. Narrow escape. Yeah. Just a couple of years. Yeah. So what did you decide to do after high school? I went to college uh, just because I didn't really know what else I was going to do. So I went to college, studied theater. Uh, my folks paid for it. Um, were they I, down I, to pay for theater school? Yeah, they, they were happy. They just they were they wanted to get me off the streets. Um, they were, you know, I was I was still basically uh, an unambitious yet angry young person. <laughs> you know, uh, your brain doesn't develop until you're 25, so you're not going to. It's just your still child brain. Yeah, I, I was, you know. Uh, I was I was basically interested in partying, um, so I went to the University of North Carolina Greensboro, which had only become a co-ed university f- four years earlier. Before that, mm-hmm. it had been the Women's College of North Carolina, so mm-hmm. it was five to one women, and I was like, okay, this is where I'm. You were into it, yeah. <laughs> so you were in Greensboro. Yeah. You were in the theater department, yeah. probably with lots of beautiful, talented women. Yeah, and 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 most of the men in the department were gay. So yeah, it was a it was a really good situation actually. Um, High five. Was that a hard? Was that you? That was an easy decision. You yeah. were like, "This is exactly where I want to be yeah. and stay." Did you graduate? Yes, I did. Congratulations. Yes, I, did. Yes, I did. thank you. Um, and I found out actually that I had way more talent um, producing things and directing things than actually acting. Uh, I thought I wanted to be an actor. I I I was actually a pretty lousy actor. Uh, because I'm basically because of the anger, uh, oh, just too emotionally closed, you know. Um, I was using using the the craft more as a deflection rather than to open up. 
Yeah, that makes you like an okay actor, but it doesn't get you all the way there. No, it, it's a, it was a, I was I was a, a in that sense a cowardly actor, and uh, you need in, in order to be a a good actor, you need courage, and and in order to be a great actor, you got to be incredibly courageous. Uh, you got to really you have to be willing to go there, and in those days, the only place I was willing to go was uh, really. Uh, the dark side i wasn't ready to open up and be vulnerable and be loving and be kind yeah vulnerability is like the key ingredient there right if you if you're acting you're making yourself feel if you're acting well you're making yourself feel pain yeah that you felt before in your life and and you're sharing it yeah and if you're not i mean you weren't a bad actor probably you just weren't ready to be vulnerable yet you hadn't worked through all your anger yeah i i i uh, I worked from the outside in, so I was good at clowny ty- type stuff. What you know? kind of stuff did you do in college? Were you in like lots of plays, musicals? I was in a few plays. Uh, Were student but, films a thing yet? Were you no, acting in films? No, no, th- that was not a thing yet. Uh, uh, there, there weren't even you know half inch uh, VHS video cameras yet at that point. Wow. Or, or, or there were, but they were expensive. Right, uh, not common. That's that stuff really came around in the eighties. Um, but what did I do? I remember what, where I had success again was actually in producing things. Uh, like for my senior year, I had ha- my, for my BFA thesis, uh, I needed to come up with uh, something, you know, a thesis project. So what I did was I found two other directors and the three of us each directed a one act play and we put them in repertory and we presented them in the, in the, in the studio theater, the, the university studio theater uh, over a, over uh, three three plays in repertory over two weeks, and uh, mine was uh, Israel Horowitz's "The Indian Wants the Bronx." Cool. And, and there were two others. And why did you pick that? Uh, well, it was two angry young men uh, uh, um, <laughs> uh, uh, tormenting a, a a guy from India uh, who's lost uh, at a phone booth trying to find uh, his his relatives, and he's been separated from them and he's you know and these two guys are basically you know uh you know tormenting him and and to me the play uh was all about uh you know the viciousness of american culture um how how we how we alienate uh and and uh take apart things that should be actually precious and sacred wow i'm having a moment yeah i think um how like american we uh, like american values are defined by exclusionism and alienation yeah by by winning the competition by by you know being bigger and better and brighter and losing yeah and so it's always a zero sum there's always a loser yeah and um so the Indian wants the Bronx sort of uh, spoke to that kind of uh, clash of values between East and West, Eastern wisdom, you know, being tormented by Western uh, savagery. Um, so looking back on your your college experience, like what? Give me um, give me oh, like a zoom out view of how, where that took your life. Was it? Oh, that's when I started practicing anarchy. Practicing anarchy. Yeah. I started practicing anarchy, uh, deliberate anarchy. Uh, uh, 
I would borrow things or move them uh, from one place to another. Uh, I would uh, hand out hand out answers to exams. Um, we had a, a created some chaos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dropped there, a lot of LSD. <laughs> was there a community there around that? Yep. Or yeah, yeah. There, there were there, up from someone? there were a bunch of us doing this. Um, uh, yeah, you know. Um, so I, I came out of college. Then basically, uh, as a practice, at good at practicing anarchy, but not real good at f- uh, f- fitting into a society that I didn't want to fit into anyway. Uh, so. Yeah. So now we're now it's like 1976, 77, 78, 79. I I, I uh, graduated at 79, so now it's like punk rock has hit the world. I was going to say everything about your story that you've told me so far is like just you you haven't used the word punk, but it's really authentically punk. Just like homebrewed anger, vague threats of war. Yeah. Like genuine anarchy not wanting to participate it's all pretty yeah it sounds like you were part of the the cultural brewing of the punk movement right you were like a really organic part of it yeah uh so after i graduated uh in 79 i um i got an audition with a uh with a with a scholastic organization that sends out acts to, to schools and um i just did a, a little routine for them or whatever and they th- they were like oh this is you know we think you'd be right for this would you be interested in a in a nine-month school tour starting in 1982 you know we'll give you a year and a half to write your show you know and uh i went yeah okay because the money was really good mm-hmm. they were paying me like 700 dollars a month which in 19 19- 82 is good money. Legit. Yeah. And um, so I said, okay, you know, so I had this time. So, uh, and and my grandmother had passed away. Uh, so I had some money inherited and I went to, um, I went to uh, Paris and, and studied movement theater. Um, whoa, 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 wait. Okay. I thought you were going to go on the nine month tour. Yeah, 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 but well, I had a year and a half before that started, so I go to Paris to get some chops. Got it. (laughs) So, okay, you got this offer. It was going to start in a year and a half. Yeah, you'd be making good monthly rate. Yeah, and you'd have time in between to write what you wanted to write. Yeah, so I go to Paris, and I'm I'm taking I'm taking courses with Etienne de Croux, who was Marcel. Why did you pick Paris? why not? <laughs> well, what were you decided? Was anywhere? Was there anywhere else on your mind? Were no, you I like, wanted to go to Paris because I actually wanted to study movement theater because it was a it was a clown act that I was going to do. Oh, cool! And so uh, Paris or bust? Yeah, so I go there. Theater. I studied. I studied with Etienne de Crew for ten months. I also uh, did did some street performing. Um, had a, had a great time in Paris, and then when I come back at at the end of eighty one. Uh, the tour starts, uh, at, you know, uh, uh, in the fall of 82 and, or no, the fall of 81, the tour starts. So I, I'm getting my years a little mixed up, but yeah, the fall of 81, it starts until the spring of 82. And I, uh, so I did that tour and traveled the United States for nine months doing about 700 miles a week. Started in Ohio and then I went to Indiana and then I went up 
into Michigan and then down into Illinois and then up into Wisconsin. And then Did you up, like it? Oh, yeah. Were was, you having the time of your life? It was incredible. I went into Iowa and then down to uh, Missouri. And uh, I can't believe you remember the order of the states you went to. Yeah. Uh, you have a really sharp memory, man. What they. Well, I drove him. I mean, I drew, <laughs> and I, I was doing 700 miles a week, about 100 miles a day um, wow. in, in a Volkswagen Super Beetle convertible. Who were you with? Was it just you? Just me, all wow. by myself. That's a lot of alone time. Yeah. Was that formative? Like, what do, you, do you think, what do you think would have happened differently if you hadn't been spending all that time alone? And, and doing I've, what you were I doing? I have no idea. I've always felt like I've been alone. So it was natural. Yeah. Um... So t- tell me what came out of that. You were loving it. You had the time of your life. You got to do. And what then you I get. Loved. And then I'm. And then I'm done. And so I'm like. I'm like. This is. I'm like 25 years old by now, and it's it's 19. It's the it's uh, the fall of uh, uh, I'm yeah. The thing is done by the spring of '82. I go back to my part time job uh, at the uh, 9:30 club in DC, which is a punk rock nightclub. Oh yeah, still famous. And uh, yeah, how was that? What I used was to work there. there. Yeah, I, I started working there in '79, on and off. Once I graduated from college, what were you doing? Booking? Or? I was no, I was a, a bouncer, and uh, I was a door person taking money, and I was also the guy who would be up on stage with the band when the kids jumped up on the stage. There was uh, the, this is when stage diving was you invented. Were I was the guy. I was moshers. I was the yeah. I was the guy launching moshers back into the crowd. Oh my god! Uh, and then it was actually a routine. You know, they would come up yell into the mic with the singer and then actually present their back of their pants to me so that I could grab their belt. (laughs) (laughs) They knew the drill. And their, and their collar. And I'd pick them off their feet and swing them back into the crowd. That's hilarious. So I'm thinking Uh, back to your fighting with, with German children. Those were actually American kids. I know. I'm saying back when you were in in grade school, you're fighting with the German children and here you are putting those skills to use. Right. With yeah. the punks at the 930 Club. Oh, I saw some amazing bands. At yeah, the who did you see? Oh, who were you rubbing shoulders with? I saw X, uh, the original lineup, and um, I saw Uta Hagen. I saw television. I saw um, um, Black Flag did an amazing show. Uh, Human Switchboard, Taff Falco and the Panther Burns, uh, UK Subs. I mean, everybody. I saw every, everybody in, from the, from those days. There was those amazing shows. I remember when X played the um, the whole room became like a mosh pit. That it was like a human tornado. I was oh. like, because it's just swirling, 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 and every now and then some kid would, you know, somebody decide that this guy is. You know, a group of kids would decide this other kid, you know, is going to get it. And I'd have to go in and rescue someone out of there because they, they were just killing them, you know. Um, you must have gotten hurt. Like, you must have. No, nah, not really. Um, I was just a little bit older than everyone else. And yeah. and uh, like I said, I didn't really have any fear. Uh, and no one actually, you know, at the 930 Club, no one, no one ever challenged me or wanted to, you know, throw down it was actually a very i mean it was it was aggressive but it wasn't violent you know it was it was no bullshit but it wasn't you know no one was out to really no no one no yeah it Uh, sounds like this is just 
you were really part of this like homebrewed movement of people who kind of all grew up under these pressure cooker cooker circumstances and needed this outlet for yeah. their anger. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so then uh, I moved to New York City, uh, January first, nineteen eighty three. I have a question. I want to take a step back. So you you went on this whole tour and you came back to the the part time job you were doing before it. Right at the at the nine thirty club. So it was part time in that I wasn't doing it every night. But do you think that your your tour, the the thing you got to do, which is amazing, right out of school and get paid well for, do you think it altered the course of your life, or do you think you landed? Right back where you would have been. Before. I think I landed right back where I would have been. And it's so funny because like for Christmas break on tour, mm-hmm. uh, my, la- my last show was in Chicago. And then it's Christmas. So I've got like two weeks before the tour resumes again uh, in uh, uh, going up into Wisconsin is where I would be going next. And I, um, I drove nonstop 17 hours from Chicago to D.C., and just in time to, you know, catch the, you know, second half of the night at the 930 Club. Wow. And I drove through a blizzard to get there. And it was, uh, so that's like what, that that's the So that kinda, scene was calling your name. Oh, that's yeah. Just where yeah. you were going to be. Oh, yeah. Right on. Yeah. So I would say it sounds to me like the 930 Club and that community was more formative than your profession at that time. Yes, Absolutely. Fascinating. Absolutely. So we moved to New York. Moved to New York, and with why did you decide to do that? Oh, because I still thought I wanted to be an actor. Okay. I didn't. I didn't know at the time I was a bad actor. I'm. I, I know now I was, but then I didn't know. Um, I still thought I could do it. Um, but I need to work. So the first gig I get is at the bottom line, just being a host, because I'd already had a gig at the nine thirty club. It was. Easy I don't know for what me that to, is. That's not a thing anymore. You don't know the bottom line. No. Oh my God. That's right. Uh, the bottom line, uh, was where Bruce Springsteen got his start in New York wow. city. And it so was a, it was a venue on bleaker street. Um, uh, not bleaker street. Was it on bleaker? It was, it was right off the, no, it was on, um, where, where Mercer meets, like, like yeah, West it is Bleaker. Bleaker and Mercer yeah. uh, is where, where the bottom line was on that corner. Um, the There's like a, a – and it was uh, – yeah, it was a showcase venue seated maybe 200, 300. I remember um, there there was an industry showcase one night for Ryan Adams. You're yeah. Familiar? Cuts Like a Knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The industry showcase for that tour. It was two shows, industry only. And Stevie Ray Vaughan is the opening act. Oh, yeah, Ryan it was Adams. it was amazing. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan just blew the place apart. You know, yeah. he, he closes it. He closes his set with uh, uh, his his rendition of Jimi Hendrix's "Voodoo Child's Sweet uh, Slight Return," and he's he's basically using his guitar as a merry-go-round at the end of the uh, at the end of the song. He's spinning on it, um, both feet, and and. Uh, uh, and the whole place, it's just, it's just uh, the creative destruction was just amazing. And, and then it was Ryan Adams' turn, and I never felt so sorry for an that, artist. My- I love that story so much. <laughs> I love that story. Ryan Adams deserved it. <laughs> and, and yeah, of course, it just, yeah, he was like, you know, he was just like a, you know, wet noodle in, in comparison. Yes. And, and then it, 
it happened again because there was bringing a ten- me so much joy because like, <laughs> there, there was a 10 o'clock show so it happened again and i was uh, like <laughs> i just love that <laughs> you know, and i could, and i could actually during the first set you know when i when you know you know i could see like it was i, was th- I remember thinking to myself like oh my god this is going to happen twice <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious so yeah all right so then and then the, the next gig i had was the pyramid nightclub and I uh, worked there for three years and then from between 83 and 86. And that was uh, an amazing, amazing, amazing experience. Um, I was a, a doorman and a, a bouncer there. And then... Uh, what made you want this to be your your part-time gig, your non-acting gig? Like you could have done any number of things for money outside of acting. What drew you to time and time again to the live music scene? Um, I, I love the live music, basically. I just, I love rock and roll. Um, I, and I love experimental music. And the Pyramid had all of that. You yeah. Know? The Pyramid, like Anne Magnuson had an act called, um, uh, what was it called? Vulcan Death Grip, where she pretended like the band was, uh, like the audience was a, actually a, an arena even though we're only a nightclub with 150 yeah, yeah. people. So she's got these canned tracks from live albums, like, you know, the live Rolling Stones where they're going, paint it black, paint it black, you devil. <laughs> you know, she had that in between her songs, her live so songs. So the fake heckler <laughs> yeah, crowd, yeah. that's funny. Fake arena crowd, yeah, and she'd yeah. throw cans back at us that she pretended <gasps> got thrown at her. And <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, stuff like that. There was a gr- group called Circle X International where the, the uh, lead singer was uh, on one of those, you know, um, Con Ed, uh, those wooden uh, rollers that w- that they spool cable on. The The lead singer was actually strapped to one of those and he rolls into the, into the nightclub um, uh, cir- circling in. What? <laughs> yeah, and he's got the mic, you know, um, uh, uh, attached to this wooden, yeah, and and there and there, there's fire uh, in these big oil cans that they're also using steel mallets to use as drums, and it's just an amazing. Uh, People must have been doing all kinds of weird shit. Like yeah, it's, yeah, it was it was like Mad Max, the weirdest time in our country's history. It was like dystopian yeah. end of the world stuff. Um, you know, Reagan was president, so yeah. n- nobody thought we would survive it. It was like, it was almost as, you know, like Trump is, is like, we were feeling that way about Reagan, like everybody, the way everybody feels about Trump. Yeah, I think it was almost worse then, right? It's, in some ways it was at first, but this is actually worse now, um, right. uh, honestly. Um, so yeah, let's let's quickly take note of the fact that we're 10 yeah. minutes till the end of the show and you're still a young man. I'm in still our a young man. All right, so, so then the next big thing actually was Surf Reality. Um, uh, surf Reality happened, uh, it was a night, uh, theater space that I, I and my ex-wife started uh, together uh, in 1993 and it lasted until 2003. And uh, that, that, by then, by the time I started Surf Reality, I kind of realized I wasn't making it as an actor and I should give up on that and that I should go back to, you know, uh, my production skills. And so, uh, how did you know, how did, what told you, like, maybe this acting thing isn't working out? I became much more appreciative to good actors. Hmm. And I, I could, you know, I was seeing what they were doing and what really worked and why it worked. And then I would like, you know, I was finally getting honest enough with myself that I was like, dude, you know, you're actually, 
you know, you're not willing to do the work. You know, you know? <laughs> and, just a hard dose of honesty. Yeah, cool. uh, uh, you're, you're, you, and until you are, you know that you're always going to be just a, you know, you know, it's you're people are going to hire other people because you know a good casting director can tell. And um, and what was the decision like to do your own thing with your ex-wife? Like how was well, that? Well, I, I I'd sort of segued into uh, videotaping up my friends. Uh, who were good, and so and so I, I wanted. I still wanted to be part of the scene, so I, I started. I became a videographer for a few years, and uh, that videography uh, gig is what actually started the whole surf reality scene. Because a friend of mine, my friend Matt Mittler from high school, who has this brilliant theater troupe called Chechi, I highly recommend you check them out. They are in, amazing. Um, uh, he, he, you know hijacked me to videotape uh he had this idea where we'd get five great improv actors together write an outline a story outline using five or six locations within a five or six block radius and then we would do the storyline with these improv actors in sequence and by the end of the day we'd have a whole movie in the camera and all we'd have to do is cut the best scenes together mm-hmm. and because uh, they'd be wor- you know, improving in sequence and yeah, we'd be going to all these different locations. And so we were spoofing, uh, 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 various genres. Like, uh, like I wrote one called thrill kill video club. So that was sort of like a, uh, like a grind house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a, we had a sci-fi one and he wrote one that was sort of made fun of French existentialism called, you know, Jules and Jim. And we had another one called, you know, we had a bunch of them. And, and so, my ex, she says, you know, when you're shooting these things, what's it feel like? What's, what, what's it like when you're shooting these improv actors doing their thing? And I said, well, it's kind of like surfing reality. Nice. And we, we looked at each other and went, surf reality. And then that became the name of the theater. Cool. And we offered, and, and, these, and these incredibly- an aha ta- moment. A these, junction that was an aha moment. Yeah. And there were all these incredibly talented actors that Matt knew that, mm-hmm. that I, you know, and that I- then knew and became my friends and, 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 and they were the people who inspired me. I was said, I'm going to open this place. And then that way, instead of me chasing them around, they'll come to me. Yeah. And they did. Um, the theater was a tr- actually a great success. Um, we had international acclaim on, in some ways, uh, household names, people, you know, uh, used to perform there when they were not famous. Um, people like Mark Marin. Uh, Amy Poehler, uh, awesome. Dave Chappelle, Whoa. um, you know, Jim Gaffigan, uh, I mean, just, you know, I mean, it, it, we, it, we had, a, I mean, but it was like just a tremendous scene and, um, you opened a, a space for people and people show up. Yeah. We, we, it was a theme. space we marketed to artists, not yeah. audiences. And, right. and cool. then, and Faceboy had his open mic there when it would go until, four or five in the morning. But that place too was actually an expression actually of anger. I was, I, uh, uh, it was, it was decidedly a non-commercial space. Uh, I, uh, I had this one rule, um, no smoking tobacco, but I didn't, I was, I was totally cool if people wanted to, you know, uh, light up, uh, twist one up in there. Um, 
In fact, there's this a famous story. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, David Leopold, had a had a late night variety show, a midnight show called the Avenue A Conspiracy. He comes back. I, uh, my living loft and the theater loft were actually right next door to each other. They're on the second floor of this building, mm-hmm. and he comes back into my living loft. His show's going on. I'm just hanging out. Uh, I think I think Jennifer and my daughter were asleep at that point because it's a midnight show. He comes back and he's, he's muttering, he's shaking his head. He says, something's going on here. Something's going on here. I, well, what's up? I, be- I guess I better go check it out. So I go into the theater and on stage, there's a guy standing there um, uh, with his pants down. Uh-oh. And there's a girl in front of him, uh, like she's in a chair. And it looks like she had just about getting ready to do some fellatio maybe and there's another guy in the audience and he's got a mic in his hand and he's sort of talking them through this and the same hand that has the mic also has a lit cigarette and i walk in the room and all of a sudden it's like the whole room just freezes (laughs) and it's like everybody's caught like a deer in headlights and i look around i sort of see the thing on stage and and that doesn't look right and then i see the guy and he's like looking at me and he's got the mic and the cigarette and i go there's no smoking in here. <laughs> and he goes, funny. yeah, right. So where were we? And I went, no, put it out now. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> right now. Do whatever you want with your bodies on my stage, but there will be no signal. And then the whole thing broke and the guy zips up his pants and she's back in her chair, relaxed again and or not relaxed, but not, not hypnotized anymore. Right. And that guy's lost his power. And I just sort of look around and go, damn, some people don't listen, leave, and then go back in the house. (laughs) (sighs) What a story. You have a minute to tell me about your labor of love, the decision to start Radio Free Brooklyn. Right. So I realized that surf reality, that's part of the reason it didn't survive the gentrification of the neighborhood was that it really was a, 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 a kind of a, a clubhouse for misfits and and, and an insane asylum. Also, it was a it was a wedge um, in the neighborhood. Uh, when surf started, uh, there were by the time we closed, there, at at one point there had been six theaters in that neighborhood, and the International New York Fringe Festival grew out of the fact that there were six theaters. We were one of the original seed theaters for that festival, but. Now, 10 years later, 15 years later, not a single one of those theaters is there. No one can afford to be in that neighborhood. It's basically, we were, we, I, I see our, I see surf reality as having been a kind of a wedge in, in, in changing that neighborhood. And the idea behind Radio Free Brooklyn is Tom and I want this to be glue. Wow. You want it to stick around. We want, we want the community to stick around. Yeah. We I want, love that. We want we want Radio Free Brooklyn to be glue for the community, not to chase everybody out of it. That's fantastic. I can't wait to ask Tom about that next week. I'm sad that we ran out of time to keep hearing about it from you. But next week, our guest will be, sorry, two weeks from now, our guest will be the other co-founder of RFB. It's Tom Tenney. Um, so thank you for listening to our first episode of Bushwick Junction. Uh, RFB is a non Profit community radio station supported by listeners. So go to the website and donate. Our theme song is by Nation of Language. Check them out on Bandcamp. Uh, and if you're interested in the show, you can find me on Facebook uh, or at Asha at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>